2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: The Streams of Winter. Livestream 25. Tyrion Lannister.
3: Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a major character who has been on a roller coaster of a ride all through this saga. He's come into conflict with his family and is sometimes even at odds with himself. It's Tyrion Lannister everyone. Through the story Tyrion's POV, Entertains us as he uses his wits and cunning to compensate for his small stature. In A Dance with Dragons, he spiraled down to hit rock bottom as a slave in Essos after killing both his lover and his father before escaping Westeros. Will Tyrion be able to elevate himself from the depths of despair in the upcoming novel? What will Daenerys make of him when the pair finally meet on page? And will his knowledge of Aegon and company be used to defeat them? These are huge questions. So to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn.
1: Hello. Hi. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Nice to see you all here. And uh, very nice for us to welcome back our friend, Emily the Eerie, as today's esteemed guest. Welcome, Emily. Hi! So excited to be back. Yeah, so we got a lot to talk about Tyrion. I want to say that Tyrion is a character that we've never done an episode about, which lots of people uh, ask us about frequently. That is because we have been kind of waiting for the Winds of Winter <laughs> to do our full blown episode about Tyrion. So uh, it's good for us to be covering him both in our recent uh, primer episode and here again as well. So. We will uh, get through as much territory as we can, but obviously he's a huge character. So if we don't cover what you want to hear, stay tuned for that Tyrion episode, which should be in your podcast feeds uh, pretty soon, right? Because Wins is coming out soon. So. <laughs> yeah. That's my Tyrion speech. Now, why don't you get us started, Yoke boy?
3: <laughs> oh, we said hello to Emily.
1: We did say hello to Emily. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Hi again, Emily. Hi again, Emily. <laughs> you just, Hi again. <laughs> You just joined us, folks. Emily's still here. <laughs> I'm
2: still here. <laughs> yeah, that Tyrion
3: episode, I think we've been talking about it since 2014. So yeah, yep. it'll be there when winter's, when winter winters <laughs> out. <hour. laughs> okay, why don't we begin? Everyone's excited to talk about Tyrion. So without further ado, I've got 10 questions today to sort of recap what's happened to Tyrion and then take us into some more predictive territory with what's going to happen. And to begin... House Lannister began the story as the stark opposing villains. And although George has introduced further nuance to the Lannisters, Tyrion is, whether he likes it or not, emotionally attached to this dysfunctional family who have a lot of power and are opposed to the story's ostensible heroes. Let's start with a discussion of how Tyrion relates to his family how those dynamics reflect in his character through the books, and what this might mean eventually for the Winds of Winter. Why don't you start us off, Emily?
2: Sure. I'm actually going to like lean on Tyrion to help me explain a little bit of, my, of this here. When he's playing Sybassy, I don't know, my pronunciations are probably all wrong, roast me in the comments, with young Griff, he lays out a nice analysis of his remaining family members. I mention it because it once again demonstrates what an adept judge of character Tyrion is, and also gives us some really concise characterizations of his family to compare and contrast to. You know, he says er, uh, Cersei is binding up Westeros' wounds with salt. That line proves true with her feast dance arc, not that he would necessarily know it being across the sea, but it's pretty accurate. And it also falls in line with many of the predictions for her future plans and wins. Jaime is described as someone who lusts for battle, not power. We know this is true, though Tyrion, again, does not. He declines Cersei's offer for them to rule together and instead rides into the Riverlands. Not precisely for battle, we find out. uh, he's, He's still, you know, trying to stay true to his oath to Catelyn there, but certainly not for power either. Tyrion also aptly pegs his uncle Kevin as a man shaped to be a follower, shaped by Tywin specifically. We certainly saw that in Tywin's lifetime and don't get a huge chance to see that disproven before Varys offs him in the, in the epilogue. You know, as an aside, it's interesting that Tyrion calls out that Kevin is shaped by Tywin when Tyrion is also known to manipulate those around him with his own schemes. Um, he's doing it to young Griff in the scene I'm pulling these quotes from, in fact. Tywin writ small indeed.
1: Yes, indeed. And I'm glad you brought up his family to start out because I think in spite of the clear influence of Tywin on his character which we'll be discussing. From the be- very beginning of the story Tyrion is framed as different from the rest of his family uh, not that anyone outside of House Lannister with the possible exception of Jon Snow who he forms this sort of unlikely friendship with very early in Game of Thrones uh, is really willing to recognize that fact Uh, But that's really the major factor that drives Tyrion's story for three books. It's his struggle to be accepted for himself, which really surpasses uh, any need that he has for familial approval, although that's certainly present. And that sort of plays out when he's seized by Catelyn Stark, when he's left in charge of the defenses of King's Landing, when he's forced to marry Sansa Stark, and probably in dozens of other small ways. But we see him increasingly frustrated at being judged for his family and kind of resigns himself to being a Lannister to the point where when he's freed from the dungeons, ostensibly fleeing from a family who would either execute or banish him, he takes a left turn. It might have actually been right, but a a metaphorical left turn and kills his father. Uh, we could spend entire live streams digging into the dynamics of that relationship, and maybe someday we will. But what's interesting in this context is how we then see him embracing darkness, really, along with uh, his family's ethos, declaring Casterly Rock to be his birthright and his personal bargaining chip, and he's not wrong about that, And, and really moving towards a ruthlessness that wasn't wholly present early on, so many people might wonder how Danny, who sees absolutely no daylight between any member of House Lannister, House Stark, or House Baratheon, the usurper and his dogs, uh, is going to react to Tyrion arriving in her court. His association with the turncloak, Brown Ben Plum, who he's bought with promises of Lannister gold, really isn't going to help much. And in my opinion, it's going to come down to Barriston's intercession and Tyrion really setting himself apart from his family in some way. I don't think he's done with darkness, but eventually he's going to have to move beyond it. And that's probably going to color a lot of our discussion today.
3: Yes, I think it will. And my answer to get back to, right back to the start, when we're introduced to Jamie Cersei and Tywin, they're Immediate villains in the story, really. To begin with, we don't have their POVs, but we do have Tyrion's. Added to the fact that whereas Jamie and Cersei looked and act regal, Tyrion is described basically as an ugly dwarf. The reader is being encouraged to sort of pity Tyrion from the offset. George wants us to like him at that point, and this sets him aside from his family. He's an outsider who shouldn't therefore be spoken of in the same breath as someone like Tywin. However, once Tyrion's wit, spirit, and misfortune bond him close to our hearts, and he begins to show his worth to readers and characters alike, George provides him with. Obstacles designed to bring the worst out in him. By the end of Storm, he's killed his love and his father in cold blood. We begin to wonder if he really is different from his family. Jenna Lannister comparing him to Tywin really brings home that point. And so George has messed with our early expectations of him and the Lannisters and steered us through plot points and decision making that add nuance and complexity to Tyrion and the family as a whole. There's speculation in the fandom about whether Tywin is his biological father, and I think sometimes this discussion misses the point. True-born or not, Tywin was still his father, the one who raised him, taught him, and punished him. In hindsight at least, it makes perfect sense that deep down, Tyrion has some of Tywin's cold attitude – If Tyrion can rise to a position of power with Daenerys Targaryen, as we'll be discussing today, don't expect him to be a merciful tactician on the Westerosi battlefield. He's as much of a Lannister as Cersei, Jaime, or indeed the Machiavellian Tywin, even though he's being placed in opposition to all of them. Okay, and moving on. Tyrion eventually flees King's Landing and arrives in Essos after being smuggled out by Varys. Arriving in Essos, he's taken in a wine cask, which is very apt, of course, to Illyrio's manse, where the cheesemonger looks to harness Tyrion's intelligence for his own complicated cause. So what is Tyrion's frame of mind at the beginning of dance? What are the causes for his mood and... How does this all manifest? Why don't you go for it, Emily?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, fresh off murdering his father, less than pleasant, pleasant trip across the Narrow Sea. This is not Tyrion at his best or in his best frame of mind at all. Uh, he's been on this slow descent, as we kind of touched in the last question, since the Battle of the Blackwater, and we're nearing rock bottom upon his arrival in Pentos. Tyrion's actions towards Illyrio's household staff are pretty reprehensible on the whole. Having been cast as the monster most of his life, he decides, why not? I'll act the part, you know, japing about patricide, regicide, and his future plans to kill the rest of his family. He seeks to frighten these women and has mixed results. He kind of reflects on the fact that he often gets pity or revulsion. Nobody fears a dwarf, he thinks, and we get the sense that he begrudges the world for this. This is around the same time that he he finds some poison mushrooms, uh, which he contemplates eating to take his own life.
1: Instead, he pockets them. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Still has them as well. Yeah. Some of Most them. Most of them. <laughs> Most of them. So I mentioned a few mo- moments ago that Tyrion is in a place of deep darkness. And we're, that's going to continue to come up here, obviously. In King's Landing, before he left, he lashed out at Jamie, the one family member who seemed to truly care about him, by falsely confessing to poisoning. Joffrey because he wanted to cause pain in retaliation for Jamie's confession about Tisha. He then proceeded to kill Shay and his father. Reasons, again, something we could spend entire hours and hours of live streams talking about those things, and they're not the same reasons. Um, they're very different and some are valid, some are not. But, but then he gives himself over to his absolute worst impulses. Traveling at the bottom of a wine cask is more than just apt. I mean that is a commentary by the author on Tyrion's state of mind. He is in the bottom of a of a bottle, literally. Uh, Like Emily said, he's on his way to literally hitting rock bottom, not caring about anyone or anything, including himself. So, we'll see glimpses of the Tyrion we knew from earlier books, but always he's going to recede behind that facade of darkness. He's lost in this downward spiral of alcoholism and abuse, and he doesn't truly hit rock bottom until later in the books. Book, that book.
3: <laughs> yeah, the bottom just keeps going down in Dance, doesn't it? And he's really been on a roller coaster throughout the story. From his close call as a captive in the Vale to the high of defending King's Landing against Stannis Baratheon and employing his unique brand of cunning to do so. From that high point he has really come to lose everything and the spiral culminated in the killing of Shea and Tywin. Cersei wants him dead, he hates Jaime now and he has no purpose. Now his power has been taken away. If he felt hated before all of this, imagine how he feels having to flee Westeros. As he travels across the narrow sea, he no doubt hates himself too, and the self-loathing manifests in him being his his worst self, as Emily was saying. Not only does George take Tyrion down to this low point, but he keeps him there and throws more and more misfortune his way throughout Dance, I think it would have been a huge mistake to portray a man who has just killed his lover and father in any other way. And I think George enjoys exploring this greyness he talks about of a character capable of both great things and really, really awful things. If it was George's initial intention to make Tyrion a character we found to be unexpectedly relatable, perhaps now he's showing us that there is a darkness in all of us that tends to rear its ugly head when we are suffering emotionally and when circumstances are working against us. Not only is Tyrion feeling impossibly isolated and alone when he reaches Essos but he also wants to get away from himself, which is why he's drinking so heavily. And Tyrion finds himself travelling east with a group of characters he judges to all be hiding something. Through his powers of deduction, which are quite formidable, he soon concludes that Griff is Lord John Connington, and that young Griff is allegedly Prince Aegon Targaryen, both seemingly back from the dead. The group obviously have a common cause, but Tyrion is a character who often drives the plot. So how did Tyrion's time with the shy maid posse affect their story, Lady Gwynne?
1: Well, you know, this group aboard the Shy Maid probably were not ready for just how quickly Tyrion Lannister was able to winkle out their big secrets, uh, which really created a huge liability for them, given that John Connington is inclined to trust no one. Not only that, but Tyrion proves that he's still adept at manipulation when he successfully inceptions the idea of not waiting for Daenerys in Young Griff's mind, which awakens a nascent egotism in the young man and sets up a future conflict at which he, Tyrion, will likely be the center. And uh, more on that shortly, of course. But there's also the smaller issue of John Connington's loss of trust in Haldon ha- Halfmaester, who lost Tyrion and celoris uh, something that might yet have a bigger impact on their relationship. We, he definitely hasn't stopped thinking about it. And wait, there's something more. Emily?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, aside from his influence on the the prince's actions moving forward and serving as an introductory POV to all these new characters, of course, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Tyrion's huge impact on Jon Connington's arc going forward. When Tyrion goes overboard in their fight with the Stoneman, the exiled lord ultimately goes in after him. The lead is buried at first. You know, we're in Tyrion's POV and we see him checking himself for Grayscale and seeming to be just fine. It isn't until later that we find out that Jon Khan is not so lucky. We already begin to see it affect his decision-making in his dance chapters, particularly the Gryphon Reborn. But suddenly his shortened lifespan is, is you know bound to impact things for Prince Aegon and his war effort in the books to come. He thinks queer as it seemed, men who would cheerfully face battle and risk death to rescue a companion would abandon that same companion in a heartbeat if he were known to have grayscale I should have left the damn or I should have let the damn dwarf drown and he's probably right from his perspective. He states his goals pretty plainly as well, stating that you know he wants to cross the narrow sea, check, See Griffin's roof is again check. And so what does that leave him? Uh, to end the usurper's line, good and all, and to put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. Then Lord John Connington could die content, he says in his chapter. As his condition progresses and becomes harder to obscure and hide from the the you know the court, he may take riskier moves, moves that someone as smart and future minded as Tyrion may be able to predict, being that he's the reason that John has grayscale to begin with but more on that later.
3: And as Emily said, Tyrion's POV provides a convenient window through which we see Aegon and company. These characters are obviously important. It's a subplot that George wants to build up, and Tyrion is a great camera POV because he's really so smart at unravelling mysteries and pays close attention to detail, and I think as readers we really enjoy that given the plethora of mysteries evident aboard the Shy Maid, it's a perfect match. It's the POV we really want looking on this situation. Not only is Tyrion excellent at reading clues and steering us through his deductions, always with a pinch of his trademark wit, but he's also a character who tends to impact the story rather than simply reacting to the events around it. George uses Tyrion's proactive streak to full effect when Tyrion manipulates Aegon into invading Westeros. This manoeuvre from Tyrion, I think, is partly aimed at destabilising his sister Cersei, who obviously wants his head on a pike, but it's also part chaos from Tyrion. I got the distinct impression that he enjoyed using his psychoanalytic skills to cause such a huge effect on Aegon and Jon Connington and their crew. Tyrion's mark on the story is always huge. As Lord Varys says, a very small man can cast a very large shadow. With Aegon's faction, Tyrion sort of observed them for a while, sussed out a lot of their secrets, perhaps not if all of them, and then steered them into war almost on a whim before they realised what he was doing. In spite of his current plight and disempowerment, don't underestimate how powerful he can be by simply employing his sharp erudite mind going forward, if Danny can make him feel at home in her camp, and allow him a certain amount of power, I really think he'll be able to replicate his prior form as a tactician that saw him best his breath in the, the Blackwater. The question really is, what will his moral compass look like at that point when he returns to Westeros? And that's what we're going to find out in those Earlier pages of the Winds of Winter. And further on in his journey in the east when he gets to Soloris Tyrion is recognised in a brothel by none other than Jorah Mormont who abducts him. Not for the bounty offered by Cersei as Tyrion at first assumes but for his own reasons and motives. Why does Jorah do this and what can be said about the dynamics between Tyrion and Jorah as both of them head east into Slaver's Bay, Lady Gwyn?
1: Tyrion immediately has the wrong end of the stick and assumes that Jorah is taking him back to Westeros to claim the reward offered by his sister, But Jorah, you know, who's grown really just as dark and angry as Tyrion, offers only monosyllabic replies to all of Tyrion's attempts to convince him otherwise, uh, because he's, he's got his own reasons. And, you know, those reasons are, he's trying to, going to try to ingratiate himself with Danny, of course. Uh, So in Volantis, it becomes clear that they're heading away from Westeros, and Tyrion senses an opportunity. Marine meant life, he thinks. And then when the Widow of the Waterfront would have refused Jorah after the incident with Penny, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, she changes her mind after speaking with Tyrion. And the pair are then offered passage aboard the Salisori Koran, and the dynamic between captor and captive shifts suddenly. You know, there's an uneasy truce aboard the ship that sets up a total reversal that's going to occur later when they're taken by slavers. And the very clever Tyrion becomes the group's de facto leader after uh, Jorah, the bear who really just responds to everything with physicality is uh, beaten into submission.
2: So from Jorah's perspective, Tyrion is this huge opportunity in a small package, I guess having been cast aside by Daenerys for his betrayals earlier in the story, Jorah is desperate to gain favor with her again, to be close to his queen again. In walks Tyrion Lannister, known only to Daenerys as the son of one of the usurper's dogs. Neither the Dragon Queen nor Mormont really know the specifics of Tyrion's relationship with House Lannister as it currently stands. It's hard to say how well these plans would have played out had things, you know, not ended up differently along their journey. On one hand, Danny has been desperate for revenge against those who betrayed her father and brother. Familiar refrain, even if she's not yet turned west. So she may look on Tyrion and, and see, you know, perfect. You know, I can make an example out of him. I can finally kill a Lannister. Great. On the other hand, we're talking about Mysa. You know, her entire brand is anti-slavery, and the idea that Jorah, in effect, captures and enslaves Tyrion may not be the best strategy from her perspective. You know, we could see the changing of fortunes that happens, you know, on their journey maybe working out better for Jorah because, you know, they come to her as equals. You know, at the same time, it could be interesting to see if that does play out, will Jorah tell danny about <laughs> enslaving and capturing tyrion or will he kind of have a, a, another lie by omission like that got him in trouble the first time so as for the dynamic between you know would be captor jorah and captive tyrion i'll let Yogboy boy elaborate a little more
3: okay both tyrion and jorah suffered greatly in the pages of a dance with dragons and in putting the pair together juxta- juxtaposed by the Often sickly, sweet penny George shows us the depths of depression, Jura seizing Tyrion in desperation to service an obsession with a with a woman is reminiscent of his crime of selling poachers to slavers in order to facilitate a lavish lifestyle with Linus hightower, so as Emily was touching upon, there are these ironies with Danny's anti-slavery ethos. There are also obvious parallels between Linus and Daenerys, even if Jorah himself doesn't recognise the patterns in his own behaviour. Once again, he finds himself in trouble as a result of capturing people, as this unlikely trio are eventually enslaved aboard the Celesori Quran. When they are taken to market and sold, I think Jura's disp- despair at being enslaved even surpasses Tyrion's given we just see him sort of give up just give up on himself and give up on life but still both men do have the common goal of ingratiating or reacquainting themselves with Daenerys. Tyrion effectively saves Jorah and eventually guides guides him out of slavery and into the second son's. In spite of the circumstances of how they met and what happens thereafter, I think ultimately their meeting will lead them to both meeting Daenerys when she returns to Marine. Given the torment of being enslaved, George has provided the reader with enough pity to sympathise with both of these characters. When George wanted us to start liking Jamie Lannister, for example, he had him captured by the Bloody Mummers and then physically hurt, almost as a sort of character penance. Keeping those dynamics in mind, when considering Jorah's future, given he's being enslaved, beaten to a pulp, and then permanently branded by his oppressors, could all of this similarly be Jorah's character penance? And in Volantis, Tyrion visits the widow of the waterfront with Jorah and there meets one of the performing dwarves he first saw at Joffrey's wedding, Penny. Penny is a lost soul, her performing partner stroke brother having been killed. What happens with Penny and Tyrion and where is this relationship going in the Winds of Winter, Lady Gwynne?
1: So... Penny starts uh, by trying to kill Tyrion, vengeance for the death of her brother Oppo, and she's so devastated and unmoored, really, when she fails that Tyrion insists on bringing her with them to Marine. a sure sign of that shift in dynamic between Tyrion and Jorah that's going to become more pronounced the further east they go. Tyrion feels a whole bunch of pity for this girl, and though he denies it to Jorah, probably a sense of guilt, too. Her brother was killed in his stead after all, and he really understands that she hates him for it. So he takes on responsibility for her welfare, and Jorah allows it to happen. Um, So while Tyrion's efforts to make amends with Penny initially fail, they eventually realize that they have something in common. Both had experienced this kind of existential crisis that was so bleak that they contemplated death as a release. But when uh, death came, comes and looks them in the face during the storm that nearly sinks the Selsori Quran. they each realize that they really actually want to live. And that shared experience is the beginning of a tentative connection that was about to become more intense than either of them could ever have imagined. By the time the Battle of Fire unfolds in the winds of winter, Tyrion and Penny have been through slavery, escape from slavery, and more, And she's just as frightened as ever, and sometimes it seems like the responsibility for caring for her is wearing thin with Tyrion. He has a lot of very unkind and even dark and violent thoughts about her, especially once his own fortunes start to look up. And I sense that after the battle, Tyrion and Penny are going to be at a crossroads. If she remains dependent, Tyrion is going to have a choice to make. Does he continue to act as her protector or abandon her to the mercy of Daenerys' court? But there's also a possibility that she finds some agency on her own, and that would be unexpected, and I think from the perspective of Tyrion's arc, potentially very interesting. So yeah, this is something that we're keeping our eyes on and uh, hope to see quite a bit more of in The Nguyen's Winter.
3: After killing um, his lover Shay and his father Tywin, as we talked about today, arguing with his brother Jamie and being hunted by his sister Cersei, Tyrion really needs to form emotional bonds with people outside of his family. He needs to practice empathy and improve his internal world by making friends in the external world. Penny, as a downtrodden dwarf, is a character Tyrion can relate to right off the bat. He is rather worldly, which is in contrast to her innocent and naive personality. A part of him doesn't enjoy her company at all, yet another part wants to see her safe and well. I think this is a big test for his character, and a lot of... A lot rides on how he treats her in The Winds of Winter. We'll be discussing the villainous side of Tyrion later, but I I must just say that there will be no greater indicator of Tyrion's character in the upcoming novel than how he treats Penny early on. I would pay close attention to their shared dynamics. There are fan theories that suggest he might even kill Penny, but in spite of... The dark thoughts that Lady Gwynne mentioned, he does, in the end, seem to want to protect her. And, you know, that's what he could end up doing. Penny will be desperately helpless and vulnerable in the Battle of Fire, and it's difficult to see what sort of long-term future she could have in the story. But in the chance that she's going to die, I hope and believe that Tyrion will have nothing to do with it. Characters aren't defined by what they think as much as what they actually do, so let's hope Tyrion will ultimately try to help her as much as he can. She represents innocence, and if Tyrion can't find empathy for her, he's not going to be able to find it for anyone.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I really love what you both said here. Uh, As you mentioned, the Penny-Tyrion dynamic goes through a really dramatic shift in dance, One thing I paid close attention to on my last reread was the staggering amount of comparisons you can draw between Penny and the other women in Tyrion's life. Early on, Penny is forced together with Tyrion, someone indirectly responsible for the death of her brother, Oppo, just like Tyrion and Sansa are forced together in marriage, despite his house being responsible not only for the death of her brother, but many in her family. Unlike Sansa, over time, Penny actually begins to develop significant trust and affection for Tyrion. In this, we're led to believe that she may be like Taisha, someone who's capable of seeing Tyrion for who he really is, not just how he looks. Frustratingly, Tyrion ignores this in part due to Penny's appearance and, and her being a dwarf. Her innocence is also a huge factor, and innocence was robbed from Taisha as a result of her tryst with Tyrion. Uh, in his memories of her after Jamie comes clean, her innocence is something that he clearly deeply cherished uh, and thinks about often. Personality-wise, there are actually very few comparisons you can really draw between Penny and Shay, but they're both women, you know, again, given over to Tyrion through little choice of their own, and as Boy mentioned, the theory that Tyrion will kill Penny suggests there could be further parallels to come. I... I personally really hope not. I'd rather consider another parallel, though, which is George choosing to show the horrors of war through the eyes of an innocent. At the Battle of the Blackwater, Sansa served as our primary viewpoint for that kind of content. Uh, I see Penny filling similar shoes in the Battle of Fire here. You know, her naivete is on full display as she discounts the idea of even wearing armor, thinking, I couldn't be in danger or I'll be protected. I, I You know, it, it's just not clicking to her how how... On the precipice of war, they really are, and how close they are to the action. How far Tyrion goes to protect her, as Yoke Boy said, will say a lot about his emotional state going into wins, so let's be on the lookout for that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be
1: worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host.
3: After being taken by slavers and sold at auction, Tyrion Penny and Jorah managed to escape their masters outside of Marine. Tyrion perhaps unsurprisingly, is the brains behind the manoeuvre and provides the impetus, and all three find refuge within the camp of the Second Sons. However, as we head into the Winds of Winter, the spectre of war is upon them. So what are relations like between Tyrion and the Second Sons, and how will Tyrion aim to survive through the Battle of Fire, Lady Gwyn?
1: Well, this is an interesting question, because... You know, some people on your first read might think Tyrion's absolutely lost his mind when he signs this giant pile of promissory notes, granting all the officers of the Second Sons progressively larger shares of Lannister gold and lands and lordships and all kinds of things that he doesn't really possess right now. But what he's really done, of course, is ensure his own safety. He's such a clever Tyrion. This is, you know, much like Barriston promising pentos to the tattered prince, Tyrion's promises belong to a future that everyone has to actually survive to in order to see them kept. So it's very easy to promise all of these things. But in doing so, he's made himself into the proverbial golden goose that his new comrades in arms are going to have to protect in order to collect their reward. And so I think his third battle is going to have a lot more in common with his first, where he was uh, accompanied by his mountain clansmen, whom he still owed their rewards, than his second, where his comrades were actively trying to kill him. Better still, unlike at the Green Fork, his, for- his first battle, Tyrion is unlikely to be sent to the most dangerous part of the fighting with the expectation of failing in order to create a diversion, which is what his actual father did to him in his first battle you know in this battle he's only really got to stay close to brown brown ben plum's men and you know bank on the fact that they're going to protect him because he is their payday uh you know it's really plot armor within plot armor uh so something i'm going to term plot armor plus
3: yeah given everything that Tyrion has been through in his life One thing we can conclude about his character is that he's a survivor. He uses his sharp thinking to navigate through the world, but he's also a Lannister. And in spite of being underprivileged in certain respects, he also comes from a notoriously rich family. As a slave, he's obviously lost all of that privilege, yet such is the reputation of the Lannisters that Tyrion is able to harness that reputation to talk his way out of trouble. As Lady Gwynne said, he's armoured in promissory notes as the Battle of Fire breaks out, using every ounce of his Lannister heritage to survive. Not all bad, being a Lannister. So... Yeah, the second sons are going to want to protect him. But he he's also not afraid to fight, as we saw earlier in the story, although he will do what it takes to survive. Not sure we'll expect him to hide away exactly. He's clearly made an impact on Ben Plum. That relationship is the key for maintaining respect from the sellswords, and with such a large amount of disorganisation evident in the Junkish camp, it looks like the late decision to switch allegiances in order to fight for Daenerys will see them on the right side of battle. It will be interesting to see how the friendship with Brown Ben Plum develops after the battle, given Plum has flip-flopped in his support of Danny. Now Plum plans to lie to her and say his defection was part of some sort of complex ruse. Perhaps Danny's judgment of Plum will come to be influenced by Tyrion and Jorah's input as witnesses. And if so, it might be worth remembering that Tyrion is financially indebted to him now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, on the whole, as you've covered, there's a ton of motivation now within the ranks of the Second Sons to keep Tyrion alive at least long enough to fulfill his promises to them. I think that Tyrion realizes that by making an agreement so widespread and public amongst the sellsword company, he's also protecting himself from Brown Ben, a known turncloak and just general sellsword. As Ben has said, there are old sellswords and there are bold sellswords, but not many old bold sellswords. Had Tyrion been bought by Ben earlier or had made a more private agreement with him, there'd be a little less pressure for Ben to keep that agreement. He can certainly overpower the dwarf after all. So by ensuring that the entire company is tied to the potential spoils of Casterly Rock, he's cut down the risk that Ben decides it's a lot easier to just sell Tyrion to Daenerys or to Cersei if he'd really like to. There's actually a nice parallel that Tyrion points out to us when he's at the slavers market. He thinks, I turned Braun, I could turn this one too. He didn't spend too much time alone with Braun before garnering the additional protection of the mountain clans. Is he employing a similar tactic in Marine using these promissory notes to gain the second son's loyalty, and in doing so, gain that extra assurance? I actually think that following this decision, his biggest and most immediate threat may have shifted back to Jorah. Emotionally gutted by the news that Danny is dead, Mormont is essentially a broken man. Should she come riding back into Slaver's Bay, or even if the rumor of her reaches him, things could change. Uh, You know, with all that Tyrion has done for Jorah lately, will that be enough to ensure that his bear stays loyal to him rather than, you know, making his own moves?
3: Definitely the potential for real interesting dynamics there. And... Presuming that Tyrion survives the Battle of Fire, and I think he will, because of the. What did you call it, Lady Gwyn? The.
2: Plot Armour Plus.
3: Plot Armour Plus. <laughs>
2: it's a new streaming service.
3: <laughs> Let's face it, he's a central character with, as we mentioned, Plot Armour Plus. Marine will soon be a busy hub for character intersections as a crowd gathers in waiting for the return of Daenerys Targaryen. There are characters who Tyrion has met, such as Mokoro and Baristan, and those he hasn't, such as Victarion and Hisdar. So what possible intersections will involve Tyrion in Marine? Who would it be interesting to see him talk with on page? And, you know, how, how do we think that those interactions could go? I'll start us off. There are so many possible meetings in Marine, which could follow the resolution of the Battle of Fire. Tyrion, in conversation with Baristan, would be excellent, given that the latter left King's Landing before Tyrion arrived there and defended the city against Stannis. Baristan might be wary of a Lannister entering Danny's company, or he might eventually recognize the potential of employing him. Remember that Barristan is hardly the brightest political player to meet our pages, whereas Tyrion, in contrast, is sharp as a knife. In spite of the wide range of differences between their characters, I think there's plenty of common ground for them to discuss. Both men have a complicated relationship with Westeros and want to return to prove personal points and to some extent satisfy a thirst for vengeance. I think a meeting between these two could build tension very nicely in the lead up to Tyrion finally coming face to face with Daenerys, which is a scene we're all anticipating and have been for years now. She trusts Baristan, and so a lot might rest on his opinion of Tyrion. How the knight responds to Tyrion remains to be seen, but there is the potential for some really interesting conflict and intriguing dynamics between these two men as they await Daenerys' return.
2: You gotta love how, you know, insightful Tyrion is, because his own POVs give you a lot about, you know, how he expects, you know, his showdown with certain characters to go. He thinks. He could not imagine Barristan the Bold greeting him with anything but hostility. Selmy had never approved of Jamie's presence in the pre- in his previous Kingsguard. Before the rebellion, the old knight thought him too young and untried. Afterward, he had been known to say that the Kingslayer should exchange that white cloak for a black one. And his own crimes were worse. Jamie had killed a madman. Tyrion had put a qu- quarrel through the groin of his own sire, a man Sir Barristan had known and served for years. So Selmy's sense of honor probably makes a lot of what Tyrion thinks here true, provided he's heard updated information from Westeros anyway. Tyrion appearing with Jorah will also not do him any favors in Barristan's eyes.
1: Mm, That is very true. Uh, Something we have to keep in front and center. But I definitely think that the Tyrion-Barristan interaction is going to be the one to watch early on, particularly if Barristan... Retains his point of view, which I think he will for some time at least. Of all the people in Marine who know or could get to know Tyrion, in my opinion, only Barristan has the power to influence what will almost certainly be Danny's preconceived notions about Lannisters, especially one who shows up in the company of Jorah Mormont and Brown Ben Plum, who, if ever they were personae non gratae, it is them <laughs> so he's uh he's gonna have to work for it so that's you know obviously something that we're keeping our eyes on and it keeps coming up here i also think that makoro you know is going to be interesting he might continue to make oblique statements about what he sees in the flames which Tyrion will probably make much more sense of than say Victarion does but uh, victorian is where the fun is going to be Tyrion does not suffer fools at all, and Victarion is nothing if not a fool of sorts. I mean, he's obviously an accomplished warlord and an outstanding seaman, but otherwise, I think Tyrion is going to enjoy toying with him while he puzzles out what exactly is going on with the Ironborn back in Westeros, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Tyrion kind of really getting the measure of everything that's happening on the Ironborn side of things, just from a few brief conversations with Victarion. You know, his ready knowledge of Westerosi politics, which is slightly fresher than Barristan's and his keen mind are really going to enable him to evaluate Victarion in a way no one else in Marine is going to be able to do, which will be a point in his favor, of course. Finally, how about Marwyn? Assuming that he shows up at some point, I think that's a meeting of the minds that we're all going to enjoy very, very much.
2: Yeah, I think a character like Tyrion will shed a lot more light on Tamarwen as a character than, you know, Pate or Samwell were really able to. Not only is Tyrion a scholar, a reader, uh, been around the block a bit more, he is this adept judge of character that we keep bringing up. I'll certainly be watching their interactions closely in wins, because I don't know where that's going to go, but I can't wait to see it. And Gwyn, I also completely agree with you about Victorian. You know, at present, he's almost almost certainly guaranteed to dislike Tyrion for being a Lannister, and he honestly doesn't pay close attention enough to the subtleties of Westerosi politics to know how much Tyrion might stand apart from his family. At most, he may have heard a rumor that Tyrion was a kinslayer, which Victarion himself has abstained from doing, despite having his own pretty solid motivations in regards to the crow's eye. So that'll be an interesting dynamic for sure. Certainly some nose-tweaking to be had. It'll also be interesting to see if Makoro sees Tyrion's arrival on the scene in Marine in his flames or, or, you know, has warning of him ahead of time since they do know each other and how a potential warning could impact Victarion's opinion of the dwarf.
3: Yeah, great points. And mentioning that Tyrion is a kinslayer, juxtaposed to Victarion being very much anti-kinslaying is something I'd never thought of and, you know, opens up you know, potential for some really, you know, great conflict in the dialogue between them and, you know, how they perceive each other. You want more... The more conflict, the better in this sort of mass intersection. I hope everybody just hates each other.
1: (laughs) With all their POVs just, like, popping off, like... uh, Uh, (laughs) This one, one, that one. It's going to be great.
3: (laughs) Okay, so... We can expect that Daenerys will return to Marine before too long, primed to move west at last and finally take a tilt at Westeros and the Iron Throne. All of Tyrion's hopes hinge on her seeing value in him, despite his Lannister heritage. So... How do we think that initial meeting between Daenerys and Tyrion will go? What can he offer her that she doesn't already have? Lady Gwyn? why don't you begin us?
1: Yeah, so Danny, I I mentioned earlier, of course, sees very little difference between Stark and Lannister. She doesn't see, you know, really an ounce of daylight between them and probably none at all between one Lannister and another. So Tyrion is going to have to weather this kind of storm of her ingrained hatred of the collective, the usurper's dogs that brought her family low and led to her life of exile and poverty. I mean, that's something it's going to be really hard for her to overcome that. But as I've mentioned, the one candidate who might speak for him is Barristan Selmy, mostly because he has... Danny's trust, and, and in the past, he's been a voice of reason to her, including specifically pointing out that Stark and Lannister are by no means the same. In other words, Barristan is in a position to be the shades of gray guy in this scenario. But as I said, Tyrion's going to have to work for this endorsement. Uh, he's going to have to prove to Barristan first that there that there is a shade of gray between him and the rest of his family, that he deserves to be judged on his own merits and not those of, of his brother or his father. But like I said, you know, I think the, the real change in Danny's attitude will come when he offers her the thing that no one else can, which is information about, Varys and Illyrio, John Connington, and her supposed nephew Aegon. Not only does Tyrion have intimate knowledge of this group, but he's already guessed, based on things he heard in Volantis, that they're heading to Westeros without her, and he knows why. And that is to stake Aegon's better claim, something that he himself told Aegon that he had. He knows that Aegon's goal there would be to see that Daenerys comes to Westeros, if she does at all, on a much weaker footing than she's been assuming. She's calling herself, you know, the the rightful queen, uh, the rightful halter of the Iron Throne. And now all of a sudden, here's this uh, kid claiming to be her nephew who's got a better claim. So and he's over there ready to stake his claim without her. So even with dragons, now it is going to be really hard for Danny to frame herself as the rightful ruler returning to save Westeros from this vicious civil war, if her nephew's already done the same thing and won himself a few major allies to boot. So Tyrion can potentially, you know, provide her with all this knowledge. He can give her the Lords of the West and possibly other regions as well. Not to mention that he has intimate knowledge of King's Landing, you know, Physically of the city, but also the politics that are going on there. Uh, so you know, Tyrion alone among Danny's possible advisors has an inkling of what's happening at the Wall, uh, which is another factor that we have to consider. Kind of in the long term, we saw that angle in play with Stannis and Davos, and it, I think it might not be too far off the mark to say that we we could get a repeat with Danny uh, being made to understand that for all of Aegon's posturing the savior of Westeros is going to have to do a lot more than marry a Dornish princess and win a couple of battles against uh, Cersei and the Tyrell armies. So to be determined, you know, where that goes, but I definitely think that we should not take our eye off of that, uh, you know, what's happening in the far north.
3: And everything that Tyrion can tell Daenerys is only going to make her more urgent. You know, it's going to expedite her process. She's not going to be wanting to stay a Marine once she realizes that someone else is taking up allies and doing all the things she wants to do. So yeah, I've never really thought of that. It's going to make her want to invade with even more haste when she gets back from Vase of Dothrak. What What do you think, Emily?
2: Yeah, you know, we've definitely talked about Tyrion's similarities to his father already, and I think that when he meets Daenerys, his unique knowledge and insight on the young Griff situation gives him a lot of leverage here. I think he's going to be careful about how he he rolls that out. As you've already mentioned, the optics and politicking around the Game of Thrones are just as valuable as their military position or a marriage uh, when it comes to, you know, winning the hearts and minds of Westeros. I expect that Tyrion, if he's not in immediate danger, will try to keep his cards tightly held when he first encounters the Dragon Queen because there are two different, very uh, very different ways that he can play it. You know, he likes to understand who he's dealing with before he makes a play uh, so long as he's not, like I said, in immediate peril. So I think he'll try to learn a little bit about Danny and make a calculation. Will he encourage her to join with Aegon? Certainly in line with, you know, John Connington's hopes. Or will he help set herself against him using the power of her dragons to overwhelm his more legitimate claim? He clearly saw one angle, the one he laid out for Aegon, the path he set him on, a man and woman coming together as equals to heal the realm and restore a unified Targaryen rule. But does Tyrion actually believe that can work? And, you know, he's a student of the histories and all those histories that he's read probably point to the fact that you know, Targaryens aren't always ready to play on the same team, uh, particularly, you know, ones who don't know each other and who are, you know, have, you know, varying legitimacies of their claims. He also knows, you know, how tenuous Griff's situation really is. The right people refusing to acknowledge his legitimacy, which certainly Cersei is going to help out with, you know, could topple things quickly for him while a real dragon-riding tar- Targaryen get, uh, shows up. So I think that, you know, Tyrion's read on Daenerys will be a major deciding factor in, in what hand he plays or the subtle way he rolls out this information to Daenerys. Um, you know, we, along with Tyrion, will have to see what type of dragon queen emerges from the Jothraki Sea uh, and what he, you know, ultimately decides. But
3: Yeah. Daenerys does... Does face a lot of changes in in the early part of uh, Windsor Winter's story. I think that's that's the setup, and actually we're, we've got a, a new primer all about this that's going to be coming out. That's our next episode. So pretty so next couple of weeks or something. So stay tuned for that one. But yeah, it's so somewhat speculative, but a good bet that Danny herself might be forced back back to Dorthrak into the Dosh Killeen at the beginning of the Winds of Winter, that scenario would be a callback to her early time when she was sold off to Khal Drogo. And so if she learns that Tyrion has suffered enslavement, but still somehow managed to o- overcome his bondage to get to her, she might be at once sympathetic to his plight and also impressed by his determined spirit. Of course, uh, presently she hates all things Lannister. But Tyrion's flight from Westeros was inextricably linked to his own anti Lannister sentiment. If Danny ha- has some preconceived idea that Tyrion is awful because of Tywin's deeds during the rebellion, How is she going to feel when she finds out that Tyrion shot Tywin on the toilet? I mean, it's not something that should impress you, but, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) And think about who is sitting on the Iron Throne right now. Cersei has unleashed a worldwide dwarf dragnet in order to capture and execute Tyrion. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, as the saying goes. With a unique knowledge of both Cersei, Aegon, and add to that, dragons, and much more besides, Tyrion would make an invaluable ally for Daenerys. Every reader knows it. He just needs a decent chance to somehow ingratiate himself with her. Uh, and as, uh, as I said, the pair do have some common ground that could sort of take the edge off the nervousness of the initial meeting. Tyrion probably has one shot, just one shot, to make her understand his worth to her. He is smart enough to, to succeed and she is smart enough to listen. And as we said earlier, Tyrion travelled aboard the Shymaid with Illyrio's schemers who aimed to see Aegon on the Iron Throne. However, it remains to be seen whether Daenerys and Aegon will find common cause, or perhaps more likely stand in opposition to one another when Danny arrives in Westeros. Could Tyrion be facing a showdown with his former travel companions during winds? And what can be said about these potential dynamics? We have hit on them earlier, but let's go into more detail now. I, I think that Danny squaring off with Aegon and company at some point is perhaps inevitable to attack for her to attack the capital right off the bat might seem too rushed from a meta storytelling perspective if she just goes for the iron throne straight away there should be some more build up so that's why George might have written Aegon into the story in the first place Danny needs a giant obstacle when she arrives in Westeros, and as we know, Mummer's Dragons are present in Westerosi Mummery to give the protagonist something to fight. Given Tyrion travelled with the faction and steered Aegon into his invasion using his cunning, manipulative psychological tactics, the potential showdown between Danny and Aegon becomes even more interesting. If and when Danny promotes Tyrion to a position of high power, such as Hand of the Queen, the story really demands that he prove himself worthy of such a rank. We all know that he's we all know what he's capable of when he puts his mind to it, and the perfect way for Tyrion to demonstrate his tactical acumen would be to use his first-hand knowledge of Aegon and company to defeat them. We witnessed Tyrion studying them on his journey from Pentos, slowly unravelling the secret identities and so on, learning about Aegon's tactical prowess via the games of Sivas and ultimately exploiting the boy's weaknesses. I think Tyrion is being set up to do more of the same when the two forces meet on the battlefield. And by then, the time will be ripe for him to re-announce himself to a Westeros which he feels rejected and forgot about him. He has major points to prove and it's all very personal to his character and his internal world, by which I mean to say that demonstrating a mastery of his external conflicts would be a great way to settle some of his inner conflicts. You
2: know, beyond what Tyrion knows of Aegon himself, his knowledge of the makeshift court surrounding this Mummer's Dragon will certainly be of value uh, to Danny, and something that we've discussed before, her current allies cannot offer her this. Tyrion doesn't think much about Gandry and Ysilla, he discounts Duck, as does Connington, so there's no reason to believe he's, you know, some great hero. Um, and he doesn't have a clear idea yet, I don't believe, who Lamor and Halden Halfmaester are, although I know the fandom has many, many, many ideas. <laughs> but Tyrion can certainly offer a lot about John Connington, and it's not hard to imagine that Daenerys is going to have some huge issues with her father's failed former hand at the side of this nephew seeking to seat himself before her on her throne. Hardened by Jora's betrayal before, she's not likely to have much faith in general in exiled knights, especially one who has she has this concrete proof has already failed House Targaryen. Um, I doubt that Jon's actions to save Tyrion will be enough to stop Tyrion from acting against him, especially if it furthers the dwarfs' cause when the time comes. It may also put Tyrion in an interesting position to reveal Connington's grayscale. I know he doesn't know about it now, but... You know, beyond that, you know, baseline intelligence and perceptiveness that he has, he's been checking himself daily for the signs. So it's on his mind a lot. And if he does, you know, encounter John Connington directly, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he could notice something that would give the game away and use that to his and his queen's advantage.
1: Yeah, i I think that's absolutely a great point. It would not surprise me at all because Tyrion is adept at a sort of untangling things with very little actual information, but he's very good at sort of making connections with, with small bits of information. So, you know, I, I'm, and I'm really sure that these groups have, that these people haven't seen the last of each other at the Soros, Tyrion saved Aegon, John Connington saved Tyrion, Gained grayscale in the process. So, you know, like you said, John Connington, he's really has a significant axe to grind, doesn't he? He's He never really trusted Tyrion. He's probably going to trust him even less once he's learned that he's joined forces with Daenerys. One of the opening sentiments of his first point of view character Uh, the Lost Lord, is if the gods were good, Lannister's severed head was halfway back to King's Landing by now, but more like the dwarf was hale and whole and somewhere close, stinking drunk and plotting some new infamy. So, you know, this is John's expectations of Tyrion, that he's either going to end up uh, as, as a head in a box in Cersei's throne room, or he's out there plotting against him, more likely. So, you know, but just for a moment, Think. Consider this: What if, at least at first, the two sides don't actually meet over across a battlefield? For his part, Tyrion is aware that you know one version of the Aegon plot involved a union of the two Targaryen claimants. Uh, he probably doesn't know that there was an earlier version of the plot <laughs> which involved something completely different, but he does know uh, from Illyrio himself that the you know that the plan was for them to meet, Danny. Uh, for Aegon to marry Danny and for them to go to Westeros together. It was actually him who convinced Aegon otherwise that he had a better claim, that maybe he should just consider, you know, ditching his, his ugly old aunt and going off west without her. So, you know, Tyrion could very well seek to use this knowledge because I do think that Tyrion is very adept at using knowledge, intelligence, in any way that he can, and I think he will use this in Danny's favor. If it comes to Danny arriving in Westeros to find Aegon ensconced in King's Landing, then why not play on that old plan, using everything Tyrion knows about Aegon and his advisors to outplay them at the Game of Thrones? John Connington is painfully aware that Tywin would have succeeded where he failed. The Battle of the Bells, the failure that haunts him every single day of his life. And a lot has been said about Connington taking a page from Tywin's book in the upcoming conflicts. But in reality, we know, we think we know that it's Tyrion who's going to be channeling his father. And we shouldn't forget that Tywin could be subtle as well as brutal. You know, it wasn't just all about, you know, going into a town or a castle and killing everybody. uh, But you know, having these really subtle plans um, to destroy your enemies. You know, why, why kill a thousand men when you can kill ten people at dinner? That kind of thing. The Red Wedding. It's aftermath. That's all evidence of uh, the subtlety that Tywin could bring to bear on a situation. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if Tyrion uses uh, that kind of subtlety. That's his skills at Syves, which I think that corresponds nicely to playing the Game of Thrones uh, to score points against his old comrades from the Shy Maid in the political realm before they kind of face off against each other on a battlefield, which I'm sure will happen eventually. But I would not be surprised to see something a little more, you know, subtle happening before that.
3: Yeah, there's definitely the potential for some sort of political manoeuvres before all-out war between Danny and Aegon comes along. Like, a lot has been said in the fandom about those two going to war, but there's usually schemes going on before such an event. So Tyrion could be sort of working his little magic in there somewhere. I agree with you there. And on to... The final question of the afternoon. In A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion starts out full of anger and despair and being enslaved and forced into a war zone takes further, a further toll on him mentally. He's a far cry from the Tyrion Lannister we enjoyed, you know, off the bat in the earlier books who made us belly laugh and defended King's Landing, etc., Now all the misery has manifested in a seriously darker and more troubled Tyrion. So my question is, will we see a happier Tyrion in the Winds of Winter? And there's a lot of discussion in the fandom about this at the moment. Is Tyrion on a villainous path or will he improve himself as a person? What do you think, Lady Gwyn?
1: Well, you know, on one regard... I do see him uh, you know, on sort of an improvement arc. I think in The Winds of Winter, we'll see a Tyrion who's fulfilled and consequently less angry because he's achieving his goals. But that's not necessarily the same thing as happiness, is it? True happiness would come in finding the answers to his questions about Tisha, which are actually a stand-in for that eternal human quest for unconditional love. And Tyrion isn't alone at failing to see that such bonds don't have to be sexual, thus, thus his continued preoccupation with Tisha. As it stands, the only person in the story I see as having the power to actually achieve that for Tyrion, as it stands right now, is Penny. And I don't think that Tyrion is in a position to accept any sort of love from her yet. I think that once he can do that, and again, I want to stress that I don't mean, you know, sexual love, I mean any sort of, you know, true human connection just just love pure love for its own sake I think that if he can learn to accept that uh, from someone like Penny or you know whoever else might might arise in his story arc that he might finally put the ghosts of Tisha and Shay to rest but we can't forget that he's almost certainly going to be channeling Tywin on Danny's behalf and other than looking at parallels Between with Ares Tywin and Danny and Tyrion, we really can't predict how far that will go. But I don't think that his darkness is done quite yet. In addition to those personal ghosts I mentioned, he still has uh, these reckonings with his siblings yet to come. Since his quarrel with Jaime is rooted in the Tisha business and, and it's based on things that were said and done in anger that will possibly be resolved positively. You know, Jaime's another person who once loved Tyrion for himself. And that's something I hope Tyrion realizes at some point, you know, in the upcoming novel or novels and really actively works to correct. But as much as Tyrion fantasizes about killing his sister, I really don't think that's going to be his fate. Uh, He's very much of a super ego type character. And so he might even end up understanding the impact that tywin had on all his children and forgiving cersei on some level in the end like really just knowing you know our father fucked us up <laughs> like and and i get that so i think improvement through darkness is my call he still has lots of demons to reckon with and his methods are almost certainly going to be influenced by his darker impulses but hopefully he's uh, working his way upwards as he goes.
2: Yeah, you know, I think just like Tyrion likes to leave himself options, I think that George kind of did that purposely with his arc here and where, where things stand. I think it's really masterful that there can be such a disagreement amongst the fandom about where he's headed. You know, Tyrion has been one of the most gray characters of the series with, you know, parts good and bad mixed. I can't help but think back to that famous exchange between uh, Davos and Melisandre, actually. Uh, What if I am? It seems to me that most men are gray. If half an onion is black with rot, is a rotten onion. A man is good or he is evil. I think that Tyrion's bound to kind of fall on the side of proving Davos' theory here correct. Most men are gray. From his inception, he's been a character who wants to be good, but is often prejudged as bad even before he's done a lot of the things that ultimately were bad and that you know would make him deserve that judgment. While there's certainly a pathway for him to kind of fully embrace his darkness, I agree with Gwyn that he's uh, about to see some fulfillment and wins that we hope will push him back from the abyss uh, that he's been dancing on the edge of lately. You know, another theme explored in A Song of Ice and Fire is, you know, the hollowness of revenge. Tyrion's tasted a bit of that himself already. He cursed his siblings, he killed his father and lover, and even goes as far as taking credit for killing Joffrey when he didn't even do that. And after all this, is he happier? Is he more fulfilled? No, he's at his lowest point, as we talked about at the beginning. He certainly still wants to raise himself back up. You know, in dance alone, he's gone from fugitive to captive to slave to sellsword. And, you know, we know that he has these great ambitions. He sees himself as the rightful lord of Casterly Rock, and, uh, you know, he needs Casterly Rock as long as he needs to depend on the Second Sons, who have tied their fortunes to his. But is he capable of the continued kinslaying that he boasts and threatens about, and that may be, you know, part of the pathway to gaining Casterly Rock? Particularly when it comes to relative innocents, like Tommen and Marcella, who are certain to be wrapped up in the Game of Thrones he's about to re-involve himself in. I'm not so sure that... He's capable of it. I don't know. You know, whenever uh, you know, as Gwyn said, you know, he 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 may not even be capable of really revenging himself upon his siblings, who certainly are, are you know much more deserving of it than innocent Tom or Marcella. You know, whenever he boasts about the trouble that he could cause down in Dorne with Marcella, it's often coupled with thoughts about repenting. He thinks, do I go to Dorne or send myself to the Wall? The linking of these two options in his mind has me thinking that Tyrion is not yet capable of taking steps that would directly put these children in danger. How that plays out, you know, if and when he backs a queen who, of course, is going to directly oppose Tommen's rule and who, you know, may also potentially oppose Dorne where Marcella is betrothed to Trystane will certainly be interesting to read and see what side he lands on.
3: I think George needs to get Tyrion feeling better about himself and the world around him if Tyrion continues to fall deeper into into despair just from a you know a story perspective it's going to get old I think it was getting old towards the end of a dance and you know how long can you stay at rock bottom with a character before it gets stale and you know starts to be depressing I think the point of his dance story was to show him hitting this rock bottom, and the book did capture that well, and there's only so far it can go. Now we need him to sort of find himself again and find, drag himself out of his rut, find his way out. The way that George might do this, which seems the most likely to me, is... If Daenerys sees value in him and rises him up to a position of power, we know from A Clash of Kings that Tyrion thrives in this sort of scenario. We saw him when he was fully competent, but then his power was ripped away from him and everything fell apart. If he can gain Danny's trust and... To be honest, I don't see the point of him coming all the way to Marine if he's not going to be given the opportunity to ascend to this position of power again. Remember that he's coming to Danny as a slave, and as we mentioned, that could elicit some sympathy on her part, which will could be a factor in promoting him as such. I wouldn't necessarily say that Tyrion is on a villainous path. Many years ago, George is quoted saying that he was villainous, but has since said that he's the greyest of the grey. I think the latter is more of an accurate description. Going forward, Tyrion will more likely be his old self. And I think there there will always be some mischief in him. And also, there will always be this... Really dark side to his personality, and we've seen him do some awful things. I expect these traits will be explored further when Daenerys invades Westeros. Now he's tasted rock bottom, he will do anything within his capabilities to avoid becoming powerless again. I think his villainous streak will therefore manifest in. Tyrion being a cutthroat advisor to Danny, someone unlikely to risk defeat, someone who will win at all costs. And I think Danny herself is going to be much like that. So those two are going to pair well. We are going to see the Tywin in Tyrion come to the fore. And alongside Danny, like I said, she will be more ruthless as well. The pair will form the bedrock of a formidable attacking force ready to strike at the heart of Westeros in the winds of winter. Okay, that's it for our analysis today, but do stick around for a minute while we say thank you to Emily for being a a great guest, your second appearance. We love having you. Thanks very much, Emily.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, And you'll certainly be seeing me in the chat tomorrow when Lady Gwyn is on Here Be Dragons.
1: Yeah. No, thank you so much, Emily. Always a delight to have you. And yeah, thanks everyone else for being here. Uh, Listeners today, people in the chat, we appreciate you, everyone who listens to us in the future. Hello, and thank you for being here. Uh, Really, we do appreciate you all. What's going on with Radio Westeros? Please, if you haven't already done so, uh, check out our current episode of our Windsor Winter Primer, which is all about marine and everything that's happening in in that area. And uh, also we have our uh, fourth installment of the Dance of the Dragon series, which was a, is a, uh, done in conjunction with History Westeros. Uh, and you can find details about and those or any of our uh, back catalog on our website which is scrolling across the bottom there coming up next as yoke boy indicated earlier we've got our final episode of the winds of winter primer series all about Daenerys in the dothraki sea uh, that should be coming out soon within the next say a uh, week or two and following that we'll also have a companion live stream And, uh, that will conclude our Winds of Winter Primer series. So follow us, uh, you know, on social media for updates on all of the above, or do check out our website. And as Emily mentioned, and I think it was mentioned in the chat by our friends, Stephen Stark, I will be on uh, Here Be Dragons tomorrow at 6 PM, just talking about uh, nerdy things. So looking forward to that as well. Don't forget to like, and subscribe before you go.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you to all of you for your support of these live streams. We'll we'll be back for more. And a special shout out to all of our chat room mods and Discord mods. You guys do such a great job. Thank you to each and every one of our patrons who support us. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign which includes all manner of incentives including Personal shout outs and early releases, and even more. Hope you guys have a great weekend and thank you so much for tuning in to our live stream today.
0: Okay, bye for now. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.